So again, if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to the little book of Jude right before the book of Revelation. Warning people of God's impending judgment is something that is um, not what our world wants to hear right now. Warning people of God's judgment has, you could say, fallen on hard times. Many Christians today are embarrassed to talk about the judgment to come or, or when they're talking to an unbeliever to, to warn them of this judgment that the Bible speaks so frequently about. In ancient times, a city was guarded by its walls. And usually on those walls, there would be watchmen. And those watchmen would stand guard all through the night. And there are several examples of that in Scripture to us. And they would watch. And they would look for an attack. This is an age where they didn't have advanced warning systems like we have today. So their advanced warning systems were their watchmen. And if a watchman saw an approaching army, his job was to sound the alarm. And if he has sounded the alarm and the city didn't listen, then their defeat would be entirely their fault, for they did not listen to the watchman. But if that watchman was unfaithful, either by falling asleep or by not sounding the alarm, the Lord would hold that watchman responsible for the fall of the city. God uses this very imagery with Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet who ministered in what we call post, uh, during the exile. Uh, he ministered at, at the same time that, that Daniel was ministering. And God set Ezekiel up as a watchman for the nation of Israel. And, and just for a moment, keep your finger in Jude and turn to the book of Ezekiel. So I want to read just a, a little bit from Ezekiel 33. And we'll tie this into where we're going with this, our passage in Jude in just a moment. Ezekiel 33. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, And he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, a sword comes and takes him away. His blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But he had, but had he taken warning, he would have escaped with his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now, as for you, son of man, that's Ezekiel. Now, as for you, son of man, I have given you as a watchman for the house of Israel so that you will hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But as for you, if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now, The Lord is not setting Ezekiel up for work salvation. Don't misunderstand what he's doing. What he is doing is holding Ezekiel fully responsible and accountable to Lord his God for communicating the message that he gives them. That's exactly what Jude is doing. So go back to Jude. Jude is a book that is not very pleasant. Ezekiel, as well as some of the other prophets who were given this task, would have no doubt rather had a very encouraging, positive ministry. They would have liked to have a ministry of of just telling people how good they're doing. 
but they were given the job of a watchman, and a watchman must sound the alarm. And in this book of Jude that we're going through, Jude is sounding the alarm. He is warning, he is warning both believers and he's warning false teachers of what is coming. For Christians, he's warning us that, that the uh, false teachers are amongst us, that we must contend for the faith. For false teachers, he is warning them of their impending judgment and warning them to turn. And with that in mind, let's look at Jude verses 14, 15, and 16 this morning. Let's just read those verses together. Again, remembering that Jude is, is in a larger sense, telling us about these false teachers, what they look like, and what their future is. If some of the material sounds familiar, it's because it is. Jude is is like circling back to make sure that we understand what he is saying and the future of these false teachers. Let's read together Jude 14. But Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly ways, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, and their mouth speaks arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. So Jude, verses 14 to 16, gives us uh, a watchman's warning. And in that watchman's warning, he, he is going to give us four features of this certain judgment, of this judgment that is coming upon false teachers. And again, he's doing two things. He is urging the church to contend for the faith, and he is warning false teachers to turn from their wicked ways. And we'll just kind of step through this. First, I want you, the first facet of this judgment is this, the certainty of the Lord's judgment of the false teachers, the certainty of the Lord's judgment of false teachers. Again, just looking at what, what is writ there, written there in Jude. He begins there saying, But Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. This judgment is certain because the, the, this is the final judgment that is spoken about so many different places in Scripture, again and again and again. This is the final judgment. So the judgment that Jude speaks about here, and it really it's a prophecy of Enoch, we'll talk about that in a minute, but this judgment is the final judgment. Right? This is the one to come. There, there are many ways in which God judges His people, and judges people in general. You, you have the, the judgment of abandonment. We see that in Romans 1, where God just abandons people uh, to their sin, slowly, stage by stage. And we see this happening around us even today. Right? So that the, the, the mind, the wicked, have just been given over to a depraved mind. There's also a, a judgment of, uh, of like Heavenly Father discipline. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12 where the Father disciplines those he loves. That's a sense of uh, judging. That is going on today. Then you have the judgment of what's called the law of reaping and sowing, which you read about in Galatians 6. So people reap what they sow. If they sow a sinful lifestyle, they're going to reap that. That is a form of God's judgment. Uh, then there's the private judgment of people when they die. It, Hebrews 9.27 says that, that it is appointed that a man shall die and after this suffer judgment. So there's that private individual judgment that again is going on as we speak, as people die and are brought to the Lord uh, for, for either um, commendation for having believed in Christ or for their judgment. But Jude's not speaking about any of those ongoing judgments. He's talking about a judgment to come, the judgment. He's speaking about the final judgment. And this is called the final judgment because it's the last one. After this, there, there are no other judgments. And in fact, all the other continual judgments will be done as well. Right? So this is the, the final judgment to end all judgments. And we read about this in Revelation. So if you're in Jude, just turn a few chapters to chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And I want to read to you verses 11 to 14, because this tells us about the final judgment. 
Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So so this is the judgment so frequently mentioned in Scripture. This is the final judgment. And we'll, we'll point to this at times again in, in the message uh, this morning. But, but just see that God gathers all the dead. Right? No matter when they died, no matter how long ago they died, he, He'll bring them before Him. They'll, he'll resurrect them to face this judgment. And this is all in, included. And, and Peter also speaks about this judgment. You can turn to there. Peter, Second Peter um, chapter 2, which is a parallel passage to Jude. We've, we've turned to this on several occasions. But look at Second Peter chapter 2. Beginning at verse, um, beginning at verse four. Second Peter. Being at verse four. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood of the world of the ungodly, upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Notice that. To keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That day of judgment is, is the day that's, that's yet coming. It's not talking about a 24-hour literal day there. It's talking about an extended period of time where the Lord brings judgment upon uh, the world. Uh, the Apostle Paul also speaks about this. He speaks about it in Acts chapter 17. You can turn there or just listen as I read that. Acts 17. Paul is in Athens and he is he is evangelizing. He is proclaiming Christ to those in, in Athens. And he says this, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. Verse 31, look at that. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. So the the judgment that Jude speaks about is the final judgment mentioned in, in Revelation chapter 20. It's the judgment that Second Peter talks about. And it's the judgment that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Acts 17. This judgment is certain. It's been mentioned many times in Scripture. This judgment is certain also because, because of this multiple times that it's been repeated in Scripture, we know that it's been predetermined by God. And, and God always keeps his word. Now, if, if you go back to Jude and look at verse 14, we see an interesting statement. He says, but Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men. So Jude is, is giving us a, a quote from Enoch. And, and basically what he's doing, he's saying that the judgment upon these men is so certain that he can go to an ancient prophecy of Enoch to prove that. 
It's not something that God decided lately. God decided this very early, early on. Let's try to understand what, what Jude is telling us through this prophecy of, of Enoch. Now, since there's more than one Enoch in the Bible, he says Enoch, seventh from Adam. Literally, seventh generation or seventh from Adam. So you've got Adam, you've got Seth. Uh, so Adam became the father of Seth. Seth became the father of Enosh. Enosh became the father of Kenan. Kenan became the father of Mahaliel. Mahaliel became the father of Jared, and Jared became the father of Enoch. And that's your seven generations. So seven generations. Remember, they did live longer at that time, a lot longer than we do today. But seven generations. That places them still very early. This is pre-flood. This is the Enoch that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 5. He is one of only two men that are said to have not died but translated directly into heaven. Let me just read Genesis 5, uh, verses 21 and 24 to you. Just gives a little introduction to who we're speaking of, of Enoch. Genesis 5, verses, beginning at verse 21. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And that's about as much as we know about Enoch. Now, if you look in your Bibles, in your Old Testament, for this prophecy of Enoch that Jude talks about, you will look in vain. You won't be able to find it. It's not there. So what's, what's going on? Well, Jude tells us of this prophecy of Enoch. And he, he says there in, in verse 14, Enoch in the seventh generation, generation from Adam also prophesied about these men. So Jude is, is, is going to give us a picture of the, the false teachers that are attacking the church, that are within the church, that have snuck into the church, and he's using this ancient prophecy of Enoch. Now, again, you won't find this in your Bible. So what is he doing? Well, there's a book, uh, what we call a, a, a non-canonical book, called the book of First Enoch. And there's a second Enoch. And I don't remember if there's a third Enoch. Right? The book of First Enoch. And today we actually have about a third of that book is preserved for us. So Jude may be pulling from what was known of that book of First Enoch. Now, now the first the book of First Enoch is one thing; it's non-canonical. That means it's not part of Scripture. Uh, secondly, it's what called pseudographia. That means pseudo means false. It's it's a, like a false writing, meaning it wasn't written by Enoch. So it's named after him, but it wasn't written by him. That's why we use the term pseudographia. It was something that came later. So what Jude is doing is he is he is pulling from this this um, non canonical book, right? It's, it, he could because he's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He could be getting direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, telling him these facts. That's a possibility, right? But it's also a possibility that he is he is paraphrasing or quoting from the portion of the first Enoch. Now sometimes that that bothers people that. Here you have a writer of scripture that's quoting a non-canonical book, and that that disturbs them. Right? Why, the re, one reason is because they think, well, is is Enoch first Enoch? Is that part of scripture? Well, the answer is no, it's not. Right? And just because uh, just because Jude is quoting from first Enoch, if he is indeed quoting, it's not an exact match, but it's a very close, very it's very close to what is in first Enoch. But even if he is, he's not giving authenticity to everything that is in the book of 1 Enoch. It's it's similar to what the Apostle Paul did when he was writing to Titus. Remember when we studied through Titus, at one point the Apostle Paul quotes a a, a pagan prophet. And he uses those prophet's words in his his argument about how, how Titus is to minister to those on the island of Crete. So Paul isn't commending everything those pagan prophets said. He just used one truthful statement about those pagan prophets in his argument. 
Jude is, is doing the same thing. He is using a prophecy of Enoch to, to rally to his, to his charge to help us understand the ancient nature of God's condemnation of these false teachers. So Jude is writing of something he's confident that happened. Right? Again, the Holy, he had the Holy Spirit. He's writing under the Holy Spirit, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help him know what is true. So did Enoch actually prophesy these things? Absolutely. Positively. And that, how, how, did, how did all that get passed down? Well, largely oral tradition. It was passed down from, from whoever heard Enoch from generation to generation to generation orally until at some point it was put uh, in writing. And then that was put down and someone put it together in the book of, of First Enoch. And that portion of it is true. How much of the rest of it is true? We, we don't know. But that portion is authenticated by the Holy Spirit, indeed, Enoch did prophesy of these false teachers. He prophesied. And the word to, to prophesy doesn't necessarily mean foretelling the future, although obviously in this context, um, Enoch is t- talking about something that is in the future. So that, that, uh, that would apply here. Now, if we look at the, at the quote that he provides there, he says, but Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam also prophesied about these men. So he's, he's relating what Enoch said long ago to the false teachers, the, the certain judgment of the false teachers. And he, listen to what he says. He says, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, um, two things I want to mention. First of all, why did, why did Jude pick an obscure, what we would consider an obscure reference to this prophecy of Enoch? Why wouldn't he just like quote something that's already in Scripture? I mean, well, part of the answer is that Enoch was not somebody who was obscure to Jude's readers. They would have known him. That was part of their, their oral tradition. They would have understood who he was, so it wouldn't have been obscure to them. Also, here Jude wants to go back to an ancient prophecy, something as far back right, as could be recalled. This is the first prophecy, really, of, of a man to another man. Any prophecy at, at this early age, any prophecy earlier than this is all God's prophecy, is God declaring what he's going to do and his plan that he's going to carry out. So this prophecy of Enoch is the first, the earliest prophecy that we have any record of, of God communicating his message through one man to other men. It is his warning. So I think that's why Jude points to it, just because of how ancient that prophecy actually actually was. Now, the other thing I want to mention here is, is if you notice how, uh, how Enoch worded this, or really how Jude wrote it, how he quoted it, Behold, the Lord came. Behold, the Lord came. Now, he's talking about the future. So why is he using a past tense? Now, if you're using the Legacy Standard Bible or the NASB 95, it's in the past tense. But if you're using a different translation, it would either be in like a, almost the Lord comes, right? Or it's talking about in the future tense, the Lord will come. So what's, what's going on here? What's, why this, why the difficulty? Well, the difficulty is that it's actually in the past tense. It's written clearly in the past tense in the Greek. And so translators are trying to help you understand that it's, that it's a future judgment. And so some translations interpret it as a future judgment. I like the fact that Legacy, uh, Standard Bible, NASB do not do that because it helps you see what is called a prophetic er- use of the, of the past tense. I've mentioned this. Uh, before, but sometimes the prophets would use a past tense of a, of the verb came, in this case came, in order to emphasize how sure, how certain the judgment would be. Like, it's so certain the Lord will come in judgment that here Enoch used a past tense to talk about a future event. It's like it's already happened. Right? And that, that's the message they want you to get. So with other translations, you would only get the fact that it's a future, a future judgment. You would kind of lose the fact that 
that the prophets actually spoke about this as a path in the past tense. Like, it's so sure. I mean, think about it. Enoch, thousands of years ago, spoke about something that would be thousands of the years in the future as done. It's as good as done. The Lord came. The Lord came. And that's what we need to take away from this. This judgment is certain. It is certain. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out before we go to our next point, and that is this. The Lord came. Notice who Enoch is speaking of and, and Jude is quoting him. The Lord came with many of his, many of his uh, uh, of holy ones. The Lord came. That's the subject of the word. It's the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're talking about an ancient prophecy that's talking about the Messiah to come that is going to come not as Savior, but as judge. Now, again, I just want to point back to something I read already in, in Acts. Just, just listen to this. Acts 17.31 says this. He that is, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through what? Through a man whom he has determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Who is that? Who, who was raised from the dead? Jesus, that's right. Jesus Christ. So the Father, though he has the right and, and highest prerogative to judge all, has handed all judgment into the to his son's hand by his by his determined plan the father has determined that and so it's just one of the another passage to help us to see that jesus is the one who's going to bring about the final judgment right sometimes people have a, a misconception about jesus and the father about the son and the father that the father is all is all um He's all justice and righteousness and judging people. And Jesus is all love and all compassion. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus is love, but so too is the Father. Everything that Jesus is, the Father is equally. That's what we have to keep in mind. And here you're seeing a passage talking about the Lord's, the Lord's coming in judgment. He's already, he's already, he already came the first time to die for our sins to rescue sinners. Now is the time for salvation. There is coming a time when the Lord Jesus is going to come to judge the world in sin. That will not be a coming for salvation. That will be a coming in judgment. That's what Jude is writing about. That's what Enoch prophesied about. This is so certain. Again, Jude's trying to drive it home. So to just kind of think about where we're at in scientific history, where we are, and everything that's going on in our nation, our politics, and the world. And, and so you read a verse like this, and I just want you to be, don't get discouraged that, like, the Lord's coming tarries. Don't get discouraged the fact that there are people who mock the Lord's coming. They, they will mock that, that we actually believe that Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to come not just to rescue us, but he's going to come to judge the world. But also, be that watchman. Remember that watchman analogy? The Lord has made each of you an ambassador for Christ. In a sense, you have a duty to be a watchman to warn others of this judgment to come. If they don't listen, that's their issue, right? Your job is to be that watchman. Don't doubt. Trust God's word. You are a watchman for people that are the unbelievers who are around you, right? Graciously and lovingly warn them. Right? We don't have to be caustic with that and should not be caustic with it as the caricature sometimes is the fundamentalist Christian who, who warns people of hell. Right? But there is damnation and judgment coming and we are called to warn them. And the other thing I want to say here, and I'll just say it from, from this point, is that we don't know the timing of this. Right? The Lord didn't give us any kind of indication when this actually would come about. In fact, speaking in his humanity, Jesus said he didn't even know. Not even the angels in heaven know, only the Father knows, right? So this is something that he, he does this intentionally because he wants us to be ready. He wants us to live with anticipation, to live in a way that we're ever ready for this day. So 
really the first facet of this judgment that he wants to communicate is its certainty. It's so certain it's going to happen. But I, we also want to look at the next facet and th- that he communicates. And I, I just will just call this the, the cataclysm of the Lord's judgment of the false teachers. There's a certainty of the Lord's judgment of false teachers and a cataclysm of the Lord's judgment of the false teachers. And, and we see this in verse 14 in the statement, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Many thousands of his holy ones. So Enoch's prophecy tells us that the Lord's coming is going to be somewhat cataclysmic. This is not something somebody can miss. The whole world will see it. The whole world will know that it's here. The whole world will know that God is judging them. Right? The Lord said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. So we're just going to see that. That's going to continue, continue, continue. But what I want you to be assured of is that man, mankind will never destroy itself. This earth will not destroy a nuclear will not be destroyed in nuclear holocaust. Right? Um, advanced AI will not destroy humanity. Right? Doesn't mean it won't cause us problems, but it will not destroy humanity. And I can say that confidently because the Bible says clearly that God is going to judge humanity. He's not just going to allow humanity to look at their their end as like a mistake. Oh, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have invented that uh, advanced AI or whatever. You know, we shouldn't have invented nuclear weapons. All of that. The Lord is going to to bring His judgment upon the world in a way that's that's really is cataclysmic. But here, notice the phrase "the holy ones." Now, many thousands of His holy ones. Now, the phrase "holy ones" could actually refer uh, it could refer to either believers or angels, because believers are referred to as saints. In passages like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Um, and in passages like 1 Thessalonians 3 and even Revelation 19, believers are pictured as returning with Christ and his coming. So this, this could be um, a, a picture of, of believers or this with this phrase, many thousands of his holy ones. But I think it's better to see this as referring almost exclusively to the angels. And the reason for that is because angels are often associated with God's judgments. We read one today in our in our scripture reading in Matthew 13. If you just want to turn there or listen as I read that, Matthew 13 is one of those passages. And I'll just pick up at um, there. We read we read uh, verses 36 through 43. which is Jesus' explanation of the parable of the tares. So remember in verse 39, he says, the reapers are angels. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. Right? Those would be like reference referring to like false teachers and those who commit lawlessness. So sin is lawlessness. So those are all the sinners. Those are the ungodly. And we'll throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So very, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is very graphic kind of um, language to describe the pain and suffering that, that, is, that, is, that people who are thrown into hell in that fiery place are going to experience. Right? So Jesus speaks more of hell than of heaven. Now look at verse 47 um, of Matthew 13. 37 through 50 is another parable. And again, talking about the, the end of the age. Look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out of the wicked, take out the wicked, from among the righteous and will throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse, verse 24 through, through 27. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, 
and will then repay each one according to his deeds. Notice that, that the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay each one according to his deeds. That's talking about judgment. Then Matthew 25 is another place we could turn to to see this. Matthew 25, looking at verses uh, 31 to 33. Matthew 25, looking at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered before him, And he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Again, these verses are just showing us that the angels are often present when the Lord judges his people. And then we could see another passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 5. I'll read verses 5 to 10. This is a plain this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering, since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our witness for our witness to you was believed. So these verses just help us understand that that the angels are often associated with the Lord's judgment when he comes in judgment. So this this, uh, judgment that Jude speaks about, this prophesied by Enoch, it is a cataclysmic judgment. There's many thousands of his holy ones. Actually, the term there is myriads. And if if, um, it's the plural of myriads, so it's like ten thousands of ten thousands. Right? So it's all his angels, all the holy angels come him. Imagine what a massive army that they will appear, right? Brilliant and shining with the Lord's glory. You know, the Lord's, the, the Lord's people, Israel, couldn't even look at Moses with a dimmed reflection of the glory of God. Can you imagine what these holy angels radiating from the glory of God? The thousands, myriads, ten thousands upon ten thousands, what that's going to be like, they're going to strike terror into the heart of every sinner instantly. I don't say that to manipulate. I say that to warn, to turn from the judgment that is to come. And for believers, to be reminded of of just what um, a judgment the Lord will bring upon uh, the world. And what judgment he's rescued us from. Right? That's another way to look at it. To rejoice in what the Lord has done in rescuing us from that. The third facet of this judgment I want us to point out. And that is what I call the content of the Lord's judgment. What is he going to do? The content to the Lord's judgment of the false teachers. What is he going to do? Right? Go back to Jude. So Jude tells us that he's going to come. Just reading the prophecy of Enoch. Behold, behold the Lord came with many of his thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly. So notice there, to execute judgment and to convict. Right? These are two, two different terms, but really talking about um, the same thing. They're different, they're different uh, aspects of that particular work the Lord's going to do. Action one, the Lord's going to execute judgment. The execution of judgment is really speaking of the Lord working as a judge. The Lord is going to be the judge and he is going to bring each person before him and he's going to open up the books and he is going to judge each person according to their deeds. He read, read that in Revelation. Right? The books will be opened. The Lord knows exactly the sins of every single person. He is going to open the books as a good judge. He's going to bring the case before himself, right? There's not a jury. This isn't a trial by jury. This is a trial by the righteous, holy God. 
So he'll bring the evidence before before uh, those that are, are facing this judgment, and he is going to bring condemnation. The evidence will convict. Right? Um, so it, this picture here of judgment isn't so much the, the punishment end of it, but the, the work of the judge in convicting people of, of sin. And notice that the Lord will convict all the ungodly. There's, there's not a subset of the ungodly that escape this. All the ungodly. All. There's a universal conviction that he says there. He'll convict. He will judge. He'll execute judgment upon all. Not one will escape. So Jude's talking about the judgment of the false teachers, but the prophecy of Enoch is wider than that. It, it includes the false teachers, but the prophecy of Enoch is that, that the Lord is going to come to execute judgment on all, meaning all the ungodly, all the unrighteous. Not one will escape. Not not one. You know, the scriptures say that not one of us is righteous. No, not one. Well, th- that means that not one will escape the judgment. The only, the only way to avoid the judgment is by recognizing that you're a sinner. Recognize Christ is a wonderful Savior who died on the cross for your sins. And if you believe in him, then your sins are forgiven in him because he paid for those sins. And then he gives you his righteousness. So that's the only way to avoid this this wrath of God to come is by faith in in Jesus Christ. So the Lord's going to come to execute judgment. He's going to come to convict all the ungodly of all the things they have done. So the idea of conviction here is the idea of silencing the mouth, which is something Romans talks about. Every mouth will be shut. There's going to be no blame game. They're going to try it but they will be silenced. Okay? There's, you can't excuse it. You can't blame somebody else. The Lord will have all the facts before him and every ungodly person will be convicted of their sin. One commentator noted this. He says that this, this conviction of the ungodly involves refuting the arguments of the guilty and establishing their guilt beyond all doubt to their shame. Unquote. So the Lord will convict all the ungodly. So there's universal conviction. And again, how is, how is the Lord going to do this? We read about it in Revelation 20. He's going to open the books. Right? He's going to bring bring all the, all the facts. He knows every fact perfectly. Remember, the Lord is outside of time. There's not past, present, and future for him. He knows the past as well as he knows the future, as well as he knows the present. He brings before him what person has done. Remember, the judgment was according to their deeds, as we read Revelation 20. So this, this, this is what the Lord's going to do. He's going to, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring conviction upon all the ungodly. So Jude writes of the certainty of the judgment, the cataclysm of the judgment, the content of the judgment, meaning what is the Lord going to do? But also notice the cause of the Lord's judgment. Why is there this judgment? The cause of the Lord's judgment is because they are ungodly. Look at the remainder of Jude 15 and verse even into 16. He says, the Lord's going to come to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So one of the ways to know emphasis of a passage sometimes is by watching the repetition. Did you get that? The ungodly, the ungodly, the ungodly, the ungodly. Short verse was said four times, the ungodly, right? So ungodly, even there's four nouns that are used and one verb that are used. He's emphasizing the judgment upon the ungodly. God is going to come in judgment because people are sinners. They are ungodly. They deserve it. Now, what does the term ungodly mean? Well, ungodly just basically means to live in a manner contrary to proper religious beliefs and practice. And that's established in God's word. So in a sense, God's going to use his word, the law, as a standard for judging people when he when he looks at them. He's going to look at how they live, and he's going to look at the, the law of God, which is written upon their heart and written in the word of God. And he's going to use that to judge them. That's the standard for righteousness is what's found in his word. So ungodly just basically means something that's contrary to God's ways or living in, in, in ways that are contrary to the way God wants us to live. So notice how these people are described. First of all, they are, they are ungodly. 
right before we talk about what they do or what they say, he says they are ungodly. So the ungodly people describes their heart. Their, their whole being is contrary to the ways of God. They're rebellious at heart, and they rebel against God. Now keep in mind, to be ungodly doesn't mean that, that it, it looks like the pagan right, who hates God or the atheist who openly throws his fist up to God. No, the ungodly can even look like the religious and often does. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus called them ungodly. They look like whitewashed tombs, but inside they're full of dead, dead. There's deadness inside. Right? The tombs that are whitewashed look pleasant on the outside, but inside they're, they're just filthy. Smells, it stinks. There's nothing but death inside. So the ungodly can even masquerade as the godly. They have an appearance of righteousness, but they've denied the God of righteousness. Then he, uh, Jude convicts them, not only, not only mentions, really it's the prophecy of Enoch, not only mentions these men are ungodly, but they, they're going to be judged because of their ungodly deeds. Not just who they are, but, but also what they do. So someone can do an ungodly deed with a, with a veneer of righteousness or a veneer of godliness, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. An ungodly deed is a deed done in, that's contrary to the law of God. Or, a deed done in a way that's contrary to the law of God. I mean, you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. That's ungodly as well. It's an ungodly deed. And then Jude mentions ungodly speech. Look at what he look at what he says there. Of all the, he's going to convict them of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So when someone speaks a, a harsh word. It's really a, a, a blasphemous word is a, is a way to say that. To speak, to speak harshly is to use your tongue like a dagger. You're trying to hurt someone. You're trying to kill them with your words. That, that's what it's referring to. So un, the ungodly would kill God if they could, but they can't. So they speak against him that way. And the Lord's going to bring conviction to that. So these people are ungodly in their character, ungodly in their deeds, ungodly in their speech. And this is the reason for such a, a, a judgment. You know, we often, um, uh, let me just back up and say, if we want to know uh, what God thinks about false teachers, you just have to look at his judgment of them, which is so severe. It's so severe. Nothing to be trifled with. Nothing to downplay. And it's nothing that we as believers should rejoice in. To, to even think about people being judged. But we rejoice in our God who will bring about perfect righteousness and judgment. And verse 16 is, is like a summary statement of, of the evil and ungodly character of these false teachers. But it, it, it reemphasizes the fact that the judgment that's going to come upon them is well deserved. Listen to how he describes them. These referring to, he's no longer quoting from Enoch. This is Jude now, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talking about the false teachers. These are grumblers. The Greek term for grumbling is pretty, it's interesting. It's it's one that kind of sounds like what it is. You know, it's like even in English, like grumble. You know, it's kind of like, the Greek term is like that, gargusma. You know, it's just like, it's like, you know when you grumble? You know, those who had seen children, you know it, or when your boss tells you something you don't want to do and you know you got to do it, you're like, you know, just that's what it is. These men are grumbling against the Lord. And this same term is used by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 in in talking uh, about the Israelites. And I'll turn there just because it gives us a good example, and that's exactly why Paul uh, wrote that passage, 1 Corinthians 10. Beginning at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did. 
and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Here's the word. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's interesting the Lord puts grumbling in there. I mean, you look at the sins, idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. How many of us would put grumbling with those things? But God does. Why? Because it's an ungodly response to our God. When you grumble about what's going on in your life, that is rebellion against God. Because he is sovereign, and he has sovereignly directed these things in your lives. Right? So this is why, because of, the, of the, how God views grumbling, this is why Paul, when, he, when he's talking about grumbling in, in Philippians 2.14, he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Because grumbling and complaining are characteristics of the ungodly, of the unconverted. And these things should not be so of the converted and those who are who are righteous through Christ. Now, obviously, we are all in this room. Every single one of us is, is like guilty to some extent of grumbling and, and complaining. And even when we do the right things, we do it with kind of wrong methods, wrong ways. So as, even as we talk about the false teachers and the judgment is all about that, apply these things to your own life. The Lord wants to purify, he wants to sanctify, he wants to grow you. That your confidence in him is so is so uh, rooted so deeply that when the temptation to grumble comes, you refuse it. Say, no, I will not sin against my God like that. And, and the good news is that if you do sin against God, he's so willing to forgive you. Just, just turn to him. Tell him. Confess to him, and he's righteous and just, so quick to forgive, and abounding in loving kindness to all those who call upon him. What a great God that we have that forgives us. Even though we've been forgiven and we're converted, he, he's so patient with us as we struggle with things like this, like grumbling. Back to Jude. So these men are grumblers. They're, they're finding fault. Kind of goes with grumbling. They're just blaming God, particularly God, but others too, but particularly God. They're, they're just blaming God for all of their problems, all of their difficulties. Look, notice the next description of them. Following after their own lust. Following after their own lust. So we've talked about this in several times because Jude has. He's brought up how they, they just live for the, for the lust of the flesh and the, the boastfulness of, the, of, of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. That's what these men are living for. And notice the next description. And their mouths speak arrogantly. They're boastful. They think too highly of themselves. And kind of a, dis, dis, a term that goes right along with that. In their arrogant speech, they are flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. They'll just tell people whatever they want that person to hear what they think that person wants to hear so that they can use them. They might want them to get money out of you. That's what you see these televangelists and, and the health and wealth and prosperity so-called gospel that gets preached today. Those people just want money, fame, power. They'll say anything to keep and have that. Those are the false teachers that Jude speaks about. And the Lord is going to judge. So know that, that the Lord is going to preserve his people. He's going to preserve us. No matter how difficult things get, he has the power to preserve you through times of trial and difficulty. He also has the power to hold the ungodly, reserve them, and keep them reserved for the punishment the judgment that is yet to come. So be assured of the Lord's judgment of false teachers. Uh, be warned by that. Know that the Lord takes us very seriously. And, and for any that might be listening that, that, that is dabbling with teaching false things, right, the false gospel, know that 
you will be held accountable by the Lord himself. You will not escape unless you flee to Christ and repent of your sins now. And for you and I, as we await the Lord's return, we need to be ready to live our lives in, 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 in growing accountability to our Lord, to honor and glorify him, to remember that we are watchmen. I, I want to go back to Ezekiel 33. So we close the service, or close the, this message. Ezekiel 33. That illustration of him being, of, of Ezekiel being the watchman. And I'll pick up the reading of verse 9. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Now as for you, son of man, say to the sons of your people, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he... In, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous that he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he does iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his, which he has done, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and does justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has done will be remembered against him. He has, he has done justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. Yet the sons of your people say, the way of the Lord is not right, when it is their own way that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does iniquity, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does justice and righteousness, he will live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Very serious words. All of that to say, when someone who is wicked realizes they're wicked and they turn from their wicked ways by faith in the Messiah to forgive their sins and they start pursuing righteousness, that's called repentance. So faith and repentance go together. There's a dramatic life change. So the Lord says, as surely as I live, all your sins that have gone before you, I will not remember them. What a blessed promise that is. But he says, if you've lived a, a righteous life and you sin and you don't repent of that, all of your righteousness is not going to help you in the day of judgment for sin. The Lord called Ezekiel to be a watchman. The Lord calls you also to be a watchman. Warn sinners and contend for the faith. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we come to a passage like this and hear a passage like this. It's very somber. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to, to remember that there is a judgment coming for the ungodly. That's not something we are to relish in or rejoice in. But you warn us of that. To help us help assure your people of what you're going to do and also that we would contend earnestly for the faith, that we would take these things seriously and warn others. Thank you that you're a God who does warn. And I just ask that you would draw men and women to yourself in saving faith. Whatever time we have left between now and your return, O oh God, 
Lord, help us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, faithful watchmen, warning those who are around us and living for the glory of Christ our Savior, always rejoicing in you, even in the midst of such somber, a somber message, remembering that in, in Christ there is much to rejoice in and a bright future for all who hope in you. Help us, Lord God, to just to live in light of these truths. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.